This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 13, Emma of England. episode, we took a deep dive back, again, into the time of Alfred. But not to talk about Alfred. No, we crossed the channel to the mainland. There we saw the remnants of a once great kingdom being ravaged by Norse Vikings, led by Rollo the Walker, founder of the Duchy of Normandy. We fast-forwarded a century to the turn of the millennium, to Richard II and his decision to send his sister Emma northward to the land currently being ravaged by Danish and Norse Vikings. On today's episode, we begin in Canterbury, the most likely site of Ethelred's and Emma's wedding in the year 1002, we think. See, a lot is left to conjecture in this historical record around this time. Now, don't misunderstand, though, since the days of Alfred, England was, at least for its time, pretty meticulous in its record-keeping. It's just, well, I hate to be so blunt about it, but we're focusing on a woman here even a woman as dynamic and tradition-shattering as Emma. And information about women were mere scribbles in the margins compared to the libraries full of information about men. Records about women, unfortunately, were scarce for the most part. In Anglo-Saxon England, there were laws and traditions pertaining to men in such great detail, it's appalling as to how little we know of women in the time. Granted, we must always remind ourselves that We're also looking through a different lens than those 1,000 years ago. This is paramount before we continue this narrative to take a moment and appreciate this fact. The sensibilities and norms of the 21st century, in most of the world I should clarify, with regards to women, slaves, and class hierarchies are simply not the sensibilities of the year 1000. We must guard our judgment as students of history to this very idea. We will never truly understand the world of Emma of Normandy, Queen of the Anglo-Saxons, if we choose to judge her times through our own modern lenses. So join me as we continue following the fascinating figure of Emma as she navigates her way in a foreign land, surrounded by foreign customs, and even a language she barely understands and married to a man 20 years her senior, a man who happens to be the king of a wealthy and embattled land, a land which is about to be set aflame by the Danes, a people whom Emma is at least tertiarily related to. I hope you enjoy the show. Elfric presided over the proceedings. This was no minor event, however. Elfric was privileged enough, as Archbishop of Canterbury, to carry out a wedding of such magnitude that only one or two archbishops in a kingdom had the opportunity to do so in his lifetime. Canterbury was chosen, we believe, to be the backdrop of this royal wedding. And being Canterbury, it would hold that its archbishop would be the one to wed the two together. 
However, believe it or not, weddings were not an ecclesiastical affair in medieval times, not necessarily, nor was a priest needed for a wedding to occur. The marriage between a man and a woman, from the lowest levels of society to its highest, was seen simply as a legal arrangement. Hey, this was business, plain and simple. As Harriet O'Brien says in her book, Queen Emma and the Vikings, quote, It was above all a type of contract between a man and a woman's family, end quote. O'Brien goes on to quote a betrothal tract called Bewifmanis Bedweddingung that reads, quote, If a man wishes to betroth a maiden or widow, and it so pleases her and her kinsmen, then it is right that the bridegroom, according to God's law and proper secular custom, should first promise and pledge to those who are her advocates that he desires her in such a way that he will maintain her according to God's law as a man should maintain his wife, and his friends are to stand surety for it. And even the mighty King Ethelred was expected to pay for her hand in marriage, too. At the outset of the marriage, he was expected to lay out in no uncertain terms, should he die first, the lands and wealth she would receive. We will return to this soon, but one such estate Emma received upon her marriage was the formidable town and royal home at Exeter in southern Wessex. And there's little doubt that a certain amount of wealth was shipped south to Duke Richard of Normandy, too. Even so, this was no simple wedding between two houses, as was the case with King Ethelred a decade or so earlier. No, this was a wedding between two peoples. This was a wedding between two antagonistic peoples. This was a wedding joining the wealthy and injured England and the rising power of the Normans in West Francia. And Ethelred was willing, in an effort to maintain peace with his Norman neighbors and continue the Norman policy of not offering safe haven to Danish Vikings, to prove without a shadow of a doubt his dedication to this agreement by marrying her in one of the grandest parishes in his kingdom, a parish that recently received its own holy artifact and attracting hundreds of pilgrims per year, if not thousands. By wedding his Norman queen in a church was serious business as it broadcasted the union across all of Christendom all the way to the Holy See in Rome. It's safe to say that waters were certainly tread carefully in those first few proceedings between Emma and Normandy and Ethelred's Englishmen and courtiers. If anything happened to her, the sister of the Duke of Normandy, then what the English had faced thus far was but a scratch, a flesh wound, if you will. Let's not forget that the Normans to the south were distant cousins of the Scandinavian Vikings, who just a century earlier forced the Frankish king to succumb to their pressure and hand over some of the most fertile lands in northern Europe. And in the meantime, they may have elevated their status as warriors on the continent by drifting away from the brutality of their raiding ancestors on foot, but rather they've become an incredible force to be reckoned with by becoming master horsemen. In truth, Ethelred hadn't yet experienced the full wrath of a Viking scourge. If anything happened to his future bride, well, there's no doubt he would soon find out. I know you're getting just as sick of hearing this as I am of running into it when I'm researching, but records were scarce at best, including those of marriage proceedings. But one gem comes to us 
through some of the documents that actually survived the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII in the 1500s. What survived this bonfire of history is but a fraction of what is believed to have existed before Henry decided he was Pope. Pro tip, when in doubt, blame Henry VIII. Elfric might have recited the following, a marriage blessing. May she be bashful and grave, reverential and modest, well instructed in heavenly doctrine. May she be fruitful in childbearing, innocent and of good rapport. End quote. You know, it's interesting the way Anglo-Saxons felt about the women's role in a marriage, even a royal one. The woman was to give off a shy but serious impression, which is to say she should speak only when spoken to, essentially. No smiling in public either. That would be, of course, unbecoming. She was to be reverential and modest, which is to say she should not show herself to be above another. She should have been well-versed in scripture too, but as far as I've read, no such injunction against Ethelred, which is kind of curious. Was a Christian marriage only anchored by the knowledge and obedience of the wife? And finally, we've come to the main point of clarification of the woman's role in a marriage. Don't die in childbirth, whatever you do. And speaking of children, what happens to the children from previous royal marriages when the king or queen gets remarried? Well, there's no question whether Richard II of Normandy stipulated that as part of this marriage, Ethelred was to put all children produced with Emma above his previous children in terms of the line of succession. Unfortunately for Emma, Ethelred's eldest sons most likely saw her as a serious threat to their inheritance. And to add to the awkwardness of the situation, Emma is thought to have been between the ages of Ethelstan and Edmund. So, yeah, awkward, right? And that's not all Ethelred no doubt agreed to by taking England's first foreign queen in over 75 years. Just before Emma arrived after, at this point, almost 10 years of Danegeld payments, Ethelred raised 24,000 pounds of gold and silver along with food to meet and feed an army and handed it over to a, another raiding band of Vikings. Richard II also, we can guess with fairly strong certainty, requested large amounts of wealth to sweeten the deal. On top of all this, Richard II, having orchestrated a pretty impressive feat of having a queen of one of the wealthier kingdoms in Europe as a sister, received a boost in his reputation and influence on the mainland. There was also an exchange of land that would have echoes over the next few centuries, further entwining these two nations. Ethelred received lands in Normandy that would revert to Emma should he die before her. Emma also received her own land in Normandy, but she also received extensive tracts of land in southern England. That was hers and hers alone. And should she die, these lands would revert to Richard II's property on the island. Emma would own one tract of land that she apparently took a liking to more than the others. This was Exeter. Exeter. Hold on to that for a bit. This was the real marriage that took place. It was a contractual agreement between two royal Christian houses at the upper echelons of European society. Once the business was agreed to, Emma was shipped off, which is where we begin this episode, with Elfric, 
Archbishop of Canterbury. This event was choking on pomp and circumstance. Norman wealth and prestige was measured against English wealth and prestige. And there was even the wealth and prestige of the Church of Canterbury itself, as it just received again that holy relic recently and capitalized on the opportunity to build even more clout as a pilgrimage site in northwestern Europe. But the moment she accepted the ring, a symbol of marriage to Ethelred, sure, but make no mistake, this was a marriage to the kingdom of England itself, to every citizen within its borders. The moment she accepted that ring in the presence of an archbishop within the walls of a church, thus in the eyes of God, she was officially married in the eyes of the church as well. Emma was the new Queen of England. And she would waste no time shaking things up from the background. The celebrations after the wedding was an equally impressive affair. Anyone who is anyone joined in the celebration. They brought their families, their entourages, their livestock, and their luggage. Many brought their personal retinue of soldiers, as well as their falconers and huntsmen to help with providing food each day and night. Some rare cuisine was served, such as crane and heron, as well as other foods that only the well-to-do in society could afford, like pork, beef, and venison. Eel, herring, and salmon were enjoyed alongside tablefuls of bread and washed down with wine and beer. So let's take a moment to discuss what kinds of drinks medieval Anglo-Saxons enjoyed, shall we? I mean, we are celebrating a royal wedding, right? <laughs> so there were four main alcoholic drinks that were enjoyed across England as well as other parts of Northern and Central Europe. But first, why not just drink milk and water and call it a day? Well, milk was enjoyed, there's no doubt about that, but as more and more towns sprang up along the rivers and streams across Europe, well... Sanitation wasn't exactly a thing, I suppose, back then. You washed your clothes in the water, that you, you went to the bathroom in the same water, which was also the water you bathed in, maybe. You know, towns, especially the large ones like London, which at the time banked the north and east side of the Thames, only created filthier and filthier rivers, lakes, and streams. In short, the water was a highway for diseases and illnesses. You have to hand it to them. Folks in the Middle Ages sure had a long way to go when it comes to sanitation and medicine. But they knew something was up with the water, even if they, even if they couldn't quite put their finger on what it was. So they had to get creative. And now, back to our four drinks. Wien, or wine, was obviously an ancient drink for, like, ever. As you know, it was made from fermented grapes, and if you remember, the medieval warming period was peaking during Ethelred's reign, and by the time William the Conqueror commissioned his Doomsday Book many decades later, we learned that southern England was home to an astonishing number of vineyards. Wine wasn't exactly a, a drink solely for the highest class of society, but it did come with a decent price tag, so it's not like everyone enjoyed it. Medu was a honey wine enjoyed all across Northern Europe, and it's the origin of the English word mead today. Honey wine was fairly simple to create, but getting the amounts of honey required made it a scarce commodity. Elu is very similar to Beor. They're both made from a fermented mixture of honey and any fruit that wasn't a grape. It was, so they said, 
incredibly sweet. But as Christine Fell has researched, Bior and Elu might have been sufficiently different to actually be two separate drinks. See, for centuries, people have assumed, as they both have the same recipe more or less, that they were the same, only Elu was a drink offered to the lower classes, while Bayor was the drink offered to, to only the highest in society. However, Fell casts doubt on this. She speculates that Bayor could have simply been garnished with fragrant spices or even mixed with an intoxicating spices and herbs, thus increasing the sweetness, as well as the level of intoxication. On the flip side, Elu might have just been the honey and fruit concoction. Either way, a great time was to be had. And let's not forget the Viking influence in England in the coming centuries. As, the, as of the 12th century, there are records of a drink called Biorblandothu Vini, which Fell believes to be either beer-blended wine or wine blended like beer, but the jury's still out on that one. <laughs> Leave it to the Vikings to mix alcohols, right? So today, instead of saying Elu and Beor, we say Ale and Beer. All right, so back to the sad after party that was Ethelred's reign. Just months into Ethelred's latest marriage, he seeks to punish all Danes living within his borders. You know, we've already covered this in the podcast, but it seems like Emma, the obedient young queen she had become, I would like to think, was listening to her new language very carefully so as to gain a little footing with her husband. History has shown that behind closed doors, women were certainly instrumental in the goings-on and prerogatives of their king. Make no mistake about that. That movie line, behind every great man is a woman rolling her eyes, is truer than Jim Carrey knew when he said it. There is no proof of this, but knowing how other royal marriages played out, I think it's entirely possible that Emma must have overheard quite a bit leading up to the mass murder of Danes or established Anglo-Danes living throughout her kingdom. This also must have played out a, you know, just a little painfully as it was ancestrally her people. The evidence we have of this comes from Robert of Torigny, writing that Emma's maternal grandmother was a Danish noblewoman. In fact, the actual order itself sounded much worse, but I find it saddening to hear that young Emma, still most likely in her adolescent years, must have silently suffered having heard whispers of this order. But if Emma were able to read, she would have read the following from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. In that year, 1002, the king ordered to be slain all the Danish men who were in England. This was done on St. Bryce's Day because the king had been informed that they would treacherously deprive him and then all his counselors of life and possess the kingdom afterwards. I mean, whether they heard that or not is up for debate, but judging by the following two facts, it's not like it was all that far-fetched of a, of a reason, you know. First, England had almost two centuries of Scandinavian influence on the island, much of it military, but there were also a large number of settlers on the island, though they were amassed mainly in the north of the kingdom around Yorkshire and Northumbria. Remember, the vast majority of Scandinavians were not, in fact, Vikings, as Viking was, for lack of a better term, the name of a vocation, Viking being the term used for raider. Scandinavians who were not Vikings were, well, what everyone else was at the time. Farmers, merchants, adventurers, metalworkers, carpenters, etc. 
And second, beginning again in 991 at Malden, it's not like the Norse and the Danish really helped their cases in trying to ease the minds of the English nobility. This order was mentioned again in December of 1004 in a document that expanded the perks afforded to St. Friedsweid Monastery in Oxford. Why this document? Well, during the massacre, the church was burnt down. So Ethelred felt compelled to rebuild it. It read, A decree was sent out by me with the witten of my leading men and magnates to the effect that all the Danes who had sprung up in the island, sprouting like cockle amongst the wheat, were to be destroyed by a most just extermination. And this decree was to be put into effect even as far as death. Those Danes who dwelt in the aforementioned town, striving to escape death, entered this sanctuary of Christ. Having broken by force the doors and bolts, resolved to make a refuge and defense for themselves therein against the people of the town and the suburbs. But when the people in pursuit strove, forced by necessity, to drive them out and could not, they set fire to the planks and burned, as it seems, this church and its ornaments and its books. I can't help but feel for Emma here. She's mere months into her royal marriage, no doubt living under a shroud of isolation due to her still learning the language and customs, as well as her new role as queen consort to the King of England. She, being descended from the Danish as well as being culturally bound to the Scandinavians, knew that this massacre was an appalling snub of her very heritage. By her own husband, no less. Though the entire entry from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles seemed curt, the account of the 1004 document shows absolutely zero remorse from Ethelred and his Witten. The church burning with Danish citizens inside was simply, well, collateral damage. Here's some money to replace it, and that's it. Next order of business. How Emma went on is a miracle. But as we said before, if Emma was anything... She was a survivor, and this first major emotional hurdle, other than the wedding, that is, she would survive, and she would learn from it. Again, she would learn to listen. And no doubt, if William of Marmsbury is to be believed, she would have her eye on one upstart nobleman who would soon take center stage. She would know him as that snake in the grass. She would hear the whispers of this man seeking to strike at the heart of Danish claim in England in 1002. In the fracas, she would hear of Edric Streona's plan to murder Gunhild, sister of Swain Forkbeard, king of Denmark, and wife of Palig, one of his more trusted acquaintances. She would most likely have eavesdropped on even more, like the details surrounding their deaths. Gunhild being forced to watch these Anglo-Saxon beasts cut her husband's head off before suffering the same fate. Edric Streona might have bragged about it, and any man capable of such violence should be kept at arm's reach at best. But if played correctly, these men, these men can be useful in a larger game. And no doubt, a bit of Edric Streona can also be heard in William of Jumiege, writing in the 1050s, a little bit of Norman propaganda of the barbarity of the English monarchy. As author Harriet O'Brien explains, he wrote, 
quote, Ethelred committed such a dreadful crime that in his own reign even the heathens judged it as a detestable, shocking deed. For in a single day he murdered, in a sudden fury and without charging them with any crime, the Danes who lived peacefully and quite harmoniously throughout the kingdom, and who did not at all fear for their lives. He ordered women to be buried up to the waists and the nipples to be torn from their breasts by ferocious mastiffs set upon them. He also gave orders to crunch little children against doorposts. End quote. So, yeah, you know, keep in mind, though, that William of Jumiege was a Norman, and he was writing this in the years leading up to William's self-claimed reclamation of the English throne. A little bit of wordsmithing goes a long way when selling war. Now, part of her dowry, as mentioned, were certain land holdings in England. Ethelred issued her lands in Rutland, Oxfordshire, Winchester, Suffolk, and Devonshire. But the one that she would come to prize would be the city of Exeter in southwestern England. Now, as we already know, the reaction of Swain Forkbeard to the St. Bryce's Day Massacre was swift and it was complete. There is a, a little history to be aware of as well. See, in 991, Richard, the first Duke of Normandy, and Ethelred came to an agreement, with a little nudge from the papacy, that is, that required Normandy to stop offering safe harbor to Viking fleets attacking England. However, when Richard I died and his son Richard II took over, Richard II felt, you know, he wasn't obliged to follow any such agreement, as he had close political ties with the Danes at this time. Richard II, remember, was Emma's brother, obviously, so it's entirely possible that Emma had already met and knew well Swain Forkbeard. When Forkbeard's forces landed near Exeter, I can't imagine what Emma thought. On the one hand, maybe she would be spared due to the close bonds with her brother, still. However, on the other hand, she was now an English queen and therefore beholden to the English, not the Norman peoples. Swain Forkbeard, historically, acted on the latter. Exeter was burned. But it is said that in order to free her, from any implication in the Danish response to the massacre that she put up Exeter secretly as a sacrifice for her integrity. Would it not cast doubt if all of her land holdings were spared while England burned all around her? One of her entourage has traditionally been accused for allowing the Danes to enter secretly and then open the gates. This would send shockwaves through the kingdom, and there's no doubt that Ethelred might have questioned his new bride about the event. But again... Emma may have been young, but she was a quick learner. She learned to survive. She weathered the political and public scorn with grace and eventually came out to be the victim. So, was it an inside job? Whether she was or she wasn't guilty is not the intention of mentioning Exeter's destruction. Rather, it is another layer to add to the complexity of this time period. And Emma, from the outset of her marriage and time as queen, would be center stage. When Emma married Ethelred in 1002, she instantly gained six stepsons and four stepdaughters, even though she may not have been older than Ethelstan Etheling, the oldest, the next in line to the throne, too. And she was instantly recognized as a threat 
to their rightful heritage as heirs to the throne. On official documents in the first two years of marriage, she appeared below the king and his first few main advisors, but ahead of Ethelred's previous children, which is a sign of great respect to the young foreign queen. But no other threat was greater than her first son with Ethelred, Edward. Edward was born in Islip, just outside of Oxford. Over the next few years, she would bear him two more children, a daughter named Godkifu and a son named Alfred. And while she was producing heirs in the year 1006, a development was happening far away from Wessex that would impact Emma and haunt her for the rest of her days, though at the time, no one could fully understand its consequences. In fact, Emma may not have even been told about it. Remember how Edric Streona turned into the king's hitman? And do you remember how Edric Streona had lured the eldermen of Northumbria and his two sons to Mercia for some, you know, friendly hunting and company? Okay, in short, Edric murdered elderman Elfheim and then blinded his two sons, which created great fissures in public opinion toward their king. Though Northumbria were always on the fringes of Anglo-Saxon acceptance, they were a valued ally in the north and held back much of the advancement from the Picts and the Scots. But they were also largely Anglo-Dane, the centuries and counting intermingling of Anglo-Saxon and Danish settlers and cultures. In a bold act of defiance, the Northumbrians, upon the death of Elderman Elfhelm, elected to marry off Elfhelm's daughter, Elfgifu, yes, another Elfgifu, to Swain Forkbeard's son, a brash young warrior named Knut. And I'm sure you see where this is headed. Not only did Ethelstan and Edmund have a rival to their throne in Edward, but they also unknowingly had rivals waiting in the wings they'd never dreamed of. In 1009, Swain Forkbeard threw the largest fleet in recent memory at England, and by 1011, Swain Forkbeard was pushing Ethelred's forces in whatever direction they wanted to push them. During this time, Ethelred's traveling court still held order, even finding time to discuss the granting of more land to Emma in Winchester. Her house on this small tract of land she called Goldbegot. It was free from taxation, which allowed her to gather a small fortune that was separate from her husband's. Emma is looking much farther ahead than Ethelred. In 1011, as Forkbeard's forces drew closer to London, the current seat of power for England, she begged Ethelred to send her away. She trusted the protection of her brother more at this point, and Ethelred relented. When she arrived in Normandy, she sent for her three children, who accompanied a retreating Ethelred to the Isle of Wight, and then were escorted the rest of the way to Emma in Rouen. This was no happy homecoming, however. The whole time she was queen in England, her brother was making deals with the very people forcing her to flee. This was certainly putting her at odds with her brother. However, she was still welcomed back, though with her head hanging low and her proverbial tail between her legs. Her husband was a failed king, which meant she was a failed queen. As Swain Forkbeard and his son, Canute, put England under the Danish thumbs, Ethelred and Emma lived in utter shame in Normandy. However, within months, Forkbeard was dead, and they were now, there were now two claimants to the, th to the throne, Ethelred II and the very young 
Canute. The Witten chose Ethelred. So Canute dumped human parts off in Kent before heading back to Denmark. In 1014, Emma was somewhat rede- redeemed, however. Let's be honest, you know, everyone knew that it was a turn of fate that reinstalled him to his throne, not his own agency. And let's not forget the humiliating slight from his nobleman, quote, to rule better than he did before, end quote. So back to England she went, but she most likely kept her children in Normandy. They were safe and she was queen. Let me stress, in medieval times, women were queens before they were mothers. A queen's love for her children looked very different from a mother's love that we know today. It was an arrangement of practicality that her children were safe, an investment in the queen's future, because as soon as she was left a widow, she would be doomed to a nunnery or worse, immediate death, which is exactly the prospect Emma would face within just two years. We know what happened between her return in 1014 and Ethelred's death in 1016. Ethelstan died and left Edmund to fight. Edmund defected from his father and married into Northumbrian nobility and had children. Edmund and Knut duked it out viciously throughout 1015 and 16. Then Ethelred died in London, with Knut's forces descending upon the city. Emma knew the jig was up. The despair she had to have felt must have been unbearable. It certainly wasn't a sense of loyalty or affection she had toward her dead husband that weighed upon her. It was the fact that he left her in such a precarious situation. Her own children in Normandy, while she was essentially imprisoned inside the walls of London. What could she do at that point? Could she rely on her stepson, Edmund, to come to her rescue? It wasn't unheard of to marry the son of your deceased husband, but after years of vitriolic relations with Ethelred's stepchildren, she could most likely just forget that prospect. Emma was on her own. There was most likely a window of time she could have escaped to Normandy, but she knew the fate that awaited her there, and a convent is not how she intended to spend her remaining time. She chose to stay with London, to suffer with them as Canute's forces bombarded the city and laid siege. Watching King Edmund's retinue and army head away from the city on a mission to gather a larger force to repel the Danish horde, she must have collapsed to her knees in despair. But knowing Emma, I also believe that after a momentary explosion of emotion, she probably rose to her feet again and looked once again out at London. I imagine a woman like Emma was not one to fold easily. She had proven her knack for survival, but Emma's best is yet to come. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on the marriage between Emma and King Ethelred. Thank you all for downloading and listening. Our numbers keep increasing, which is a testament to all of you. So please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast. Or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I update these pages weekly and I would love to hear from you. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com, which I check almost daily. On the next episode, we will see Emma showcasing her instinct for survival. She would make hard decisions that will guide England through the next several decades, and she would begin to write, literally actually, the playbook for a medieval queen. I can't wait to tell you about it.